from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. When I started sharing with people that I would be going to the University of Wisconsin for my transplant fellowship in 2005, I received a universal response from every senior surgeon, regardless of where they were from. Wow, one of my favorite people is in charge there, Brett Favre. No, that's not what they said. They said Brett Favre. Okay, that's really dumb. Really, they said Bing Rickers. I didn't know Dr. Rickers at the time, but as I came to know him, it became obvious why people spoke about him with such warmth and reverence. He is one of those people who just inspires greatness from everyone around him. He makes everyone better. He served as chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin from 1996 until 2008, and before that was a chairman of surgery at the University of Nebraska. He was a previous editor-in-chief of the Annals of Surgery and president of various societies, including the American Board of Surgery and the Society of Clinical Surgery. I could go on listing the various honors and accomplishments, but I do think as great as those accomplishments are, they pale in comparison to what Bing should be remembered for and what he was really proud of, starting his own internet search engine. Bing. It's true he was unable to supplant Google as the premier search engine, but he was at least able to dethrone Ask Jeeves, which I think we can all agree was a huge accomplishment. Am I the only one who actually used Ask Jeeves? Sorry, that was just a momentary look into how my brain works, which does explain why I will never achieve any of the things that my guests have been able to do. But the two things Bing is most proud of is all the young people he was able to mentor in surgery and his own family, starting with his incredible wife, Didi. I have never met a trainee of his who wasn't so proud to have worked with him. And after spending some time with Didi, it is obvious why he was able to be so successful. Bing clearly married up. Bing was always a man ahead of his time. He celebrated diversity and inclusivity. He always thought the best of everyone around him. He was loaded with so much emotional intelligence, he understood balance and wellness. And he has an absolutely infectious laugh. I consider myself lucky to have gotten to know Bing. I am so excited to share his story with you. All right. Well, Bing Rakers, welcome to the set. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. It's so exciting to have you here. And for our listeners, uh, this is one of the few podcasts that we've actually been able to do in person now that we're both vaccinated. And uh, it's just a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. So I'd like to start out with the guests to um, back up and talk about your early life, where you were born, where you grew up, and why you ultimately decided to go into medicine. Yeah, I was actually born in Fond du Lac, although I lived in Walpun, Wisconsin. And the reason I was born in Fond du Lac is that Walpun did not have a hospital. And it first got a hospital many years later as a result of my father, who was a small town lawyer who became mayor. Oh, my goodness. And he got the whole movement going and the committee going to get a Walpun hospital. So uh, 
although I lived in Walpon for the first 18 years of my life and went to high school there, I wasn't born there because of the lack of a hospital. Interesting. How did your family end up in Walpon? My grandparents lived in Walpon. My grandfather, Rickers, was half Dutch, or maybe, I guess, maybe father grandfather Rickers was 100% Dutch, making my father 50% uh-huh. Dutch and me 25% Dutch, although that's that's what I claim. And my grandfather was a traveling salesman, got married near uh, Wapan or in Wapan, and my father was born there. Then my father uh, went to law school, undergraduate school at the University of Wisconsin, and law school at the University of Wisconsin, came back to Wapan, started a practice. And then, of course, World War II Mm -hmm. uh, came along. He went into the Navy. He'd always loved water. And uh, we've always had a cottage on a lake. During the time I was growing up, we had a cottage on Green Lake in Mm -hmm. Wisconsin. But as he always stated, he was never further away from water in his life than when he was in the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) He was stationed at a naval air base uh, in Norman, Oklahoma. And so uh, soon after I was born, we moved there for, I think I was there one year. Mm-hmm. Then the, the, I was born in 44, so the war ended in 45. So we're there about a year and then came back to Wapan. In about my junior year of high school, my father, who had been a, a small town lawyer, but had a lot of connections and was really, I thought, a very charismatic mm-hmm. guy, got recruited to be the executive chief uh, of a of a big savings and loan bank in Fond du Lac. Mm. And my father was such a kind person. He did not move to Fond du Lac and take me out of high school, but commuted, commuted. until I went to college. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And was your mom also from the town of Wapon? Yeah, my, my mother was actually born in Fairwater, Wisconsin. And also has an interesting also has an interesting history. She went to college at Northwestern and was a classics major. Her major was in Greek and Latin. Wow! And when I was in high school, she made me take Latin, <laughs> which I actually ended up loving. Uh, well, anyway, there weren't a lot of jobs for classics majors, especially women. But then she moved from Chicago to Madison, Wisconsin and went to school to become a laboratory technician and met my father, who was uh, in law school here. And then in 1939, they were married. And my brother was born in 42 and I was born in 44. Wow. So serious Wisconsin roots. Yes. Yeah. So what? So what? So you grew up there, and um, take me from growing up high school all the way to medical school. What kind of kid were you? Were you an athlete? Were you a student? Well, I, I, I kind of both, I guess. I loved sports, and I played football. I was a quarterback of the mm. Wampun Warriors, and I also got—I was in a class with a bunch of guys who were really into academics. Uh-huh. So I was too, and I ended up being valedictorian of of a class of 100, you know. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's about the same size as my class, to be honest. But I'm not, uh, what I'm most proud of is that I, is that I was awarded the wooden shoe, (laughs) which was, which they gave in the junior year. And and I got the wooden shoe and my name is still inscribed on that shoe in the high school in Walpon, Wisconsin. I haven't gone back to look at it. Well, what is the shoe for? Is it for academics? it, it It was, it was for a mixture. 
It was for, uh, for outstanding junior student or whatever. Uh, that's but, probably of all the awards you've gotten, that might be one of the most memorable. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> okay. And you were you, a, you were a big Packers fan, is that right? I was a big Packers yeah, fan. Yeah, I remember that about I it. love football, still yeah. do. Had you been exposed to any docs or surgeons at that point, or that was a total no, mystery? No, not really. My, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side, who I never met because he died a year before I was born, was a physician. He was an internist. He graduated from Rush Medical College, and they lived in Fond du Lac at that mm -hmm. time, where my mother was brought up. His name was Oliver Layton, and Layton is my first name. Right, right. So I, I was actually given my mother's maiden name uh, as a first name. Where did you? I was going to ask you this later, but where did you get the name Bing? Was that from? Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, you know, you know, myths that develop. I've always been told. The reason I'm called Bing is my brother, who was a year and a half old when I was born, couldn't say Layton, uh. so he pointed at me and said, Bing. <laughs> that's great. And, and it's been Bing ever since, yeah. Oh, I'm glad. I thought there was going to be some different story around that, but that's awesome. It reminds <laughs> me of the Monty Python, this is a machine that goes Bing, but <laughs> anyways. Well, now the Bing search uh, engine is out there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Instead of Google, you can bang it. Yeah, That's you can right. bang it, right. It's a verb now. I forget now where you went to college. Okay. Well, I uh, graduated from high school there. My parents mm -hmm. really wanted me to apply to some Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. My brother was, again, two grades ahead of me. He was at the University of Wisconsin. And I went down for a couple of weekends to visit him. And I decided there's nowhere else I'm going to go than the oh, University okay. of Wisconsin. And I, I just love yeah. the atmosphere here. Mm. And I love the sports. And I, uh, you know, I love the partying. And I mean, the, the whole atmosphere of Wisconsin really attracted me. Now, mm. I like to think that that's the whole story. It might also have been a level of insecurity. I mean, I'm coming from a small town, a small high school. And I'm thinking, gee, could I ever compete with, you know, people in the Ivy League? I, I, that's remotely in my mind. I don't know if it, it might have been a bit insecure. And mm. that also might have been a reason I went to the University of Wisconsin. Interesting. Insecure is not the word that comes to my mind when I think of you, but I got to know you later in your <laughs> in your career. Well, you know, I, I, I'm insecure about a number of things. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. We'll get into that more a little okay. bit later. Um <laughs> Okay, so when you went to college, were you thinking medicine or not at all? What I found is that I really liked sciences, another indication of insecurity. Mm. I felt that I really couldn't write. I didn't, and and mm. go, my mother, who was so insightful, she really wanted me to take this integrative liberal studies course, which would have been marvelous. And I didn't because I was afraid of the humanities and all the writing and all that sort of business. So I became very science focused and I was a biology major and I absolutely love biology. The way I got pointed towards medicine is really, I think, incredibly serendipitous. Mm. One, and something I've always felt badly about, my brother so wanted to go to medical school and never got the grades to be mm. accepted. But he started actually at the University of Wisconsin, its first pre-medical society. Mm. So he was the head of this pre-medical this very new pre-medical society and invited me to come to things. Oh, In fact, goodness. we roomed together one year. And my, my sophomore year, when he was a senior, we, we roomed in this little gruddy apartment <laughs> uh, uh, off of University Avenue, and, which was very different then than it is, is now. 
But anyway, he was the head of this uh, pre-medical society. That was one thing. And then I was really interested in sciences, especially biological sciences. Didn't think I wanted to have a career as a university professor in Mm. biological sciences. So I kind of married the biological sciences with an interest in interacting with people and relationships and so forth. And I said, gee, what my brother is seeking makes sense to me. Mm. And then, you know, kind of nepotism, but he passed the presidency of the pre-medical society to me. And so, gee, that's great. And I'd arranged the programs there for a year or two. But I had one huge block as far as going to medicine, one huge fear. I'd always feared blood. And when people drew blood from me, I would often faint. Really? Really. And I, I, I had very easy vasovagal reactions. So how do you solve that? How can you be a doctor and be have a fear of having your blood drawn. So my girlfriend at the time, whose name I can't even remember, but it wasn't Dee Dee, who I also met at the University Uh, of Wisconsin, but I convinced her to support me and we would go down and I would give blood to prove that I could handle it and then I could apply to medical school. Oh my goodness. So we went down and there was a line of people waiting and I got more and more nervous as I'm in line and she's there supporting me and talking things up. And I finally got there. And of course, the first thing they do is take your blood pressure. Well, my blood pressure was 90 over 50 by the time <laughs> I got there. <laughs> and, and they said, I'm sorry, you're in shock. You cannot give blood. <laughs> your vagal system was going. My vagal <laughs> system was so active. However, later, I was able to give blood. I really, I mean, to me, that's one of the greatest victories in my life. I've never given a unit of blood since. Interesting. That one time. And what's interesting, you know the kind of surgery I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, blood was all over the floor. And blood coming out of someone else evidently doesn't bother me. (laughs) It's blood coming out of you. Still, when I need to go in and have my blood drawn, I close my eyes, tell them I can't sit up. I need to lie back. And um, in fact, one story of that, when I was going off to um, (laughs) become chairman of surgery at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, I was a staff surgeon at the University of Utah. And one of the things I had to do was have a physical and have my blood drawn, this Mm -hmm. and that, you know, like you do when you when you move to a new position. And so I bolstered up all my energy and uh, went down there. They wanted urine and they wanted blood. I went down and I got through it. I gave blood and then they said, here's your little cup and go in and pass your urine. I was so lightheaded. I got into the bathroom and, <laughs> and got down into the, in, in the kneeling position with my, with my head down. And then I finally gave them some urine and thought I'd really accomplish this whole thing. Came up and my secretary said, oh my God, Dr. Rickers, are you ever white? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that about you. Yeah, well, yeah. It's funny, I would have thought- I've got all kinds of flaws you don't oh, know yeah. about, right? We're going to try and uncover some of them here. But yeah, my goal in these interviews is to make people cry. That's what I want, but <laughs> I'm not quite like Oprah yet. But we'll yeah, I've played this through my mind many times, so it doesn't make me cry It doesn't make you cry anymore. Right. We're in not fact, gonna... I consider it a huge victory. Yeah, but we're not going to draw blood during this interview, hopefully. Okay, good. Hopefully. Okay, so you you then applied to medical school. You ended up in California? Yeah, well, yeah. what happened was this. And again, serendipity mm-hmm. is is the name of my life, mm-hmm. really. And, and so I then finally decided as time went on that I, I wanted to be a doctor. 
I was going to medical school. And I thought, gee, what kind of doctor I want to be? Well, I thought, I think I want to go live in a small town like I grew up in and be a good general practitioner. Mm -hmm. And during my junior year in college, uh, Didi and I started dating Mm -hmm. and fell in love and decided that we're going to, we announced in January to both sets of parents that we're going to get married in the summer because mm. I didn't want to go off to medical school without Dee Dee. Right. And that's in fact what we, what we did. So I applied to, and I, I got accepted at the university of Chicago, All right. Western reserve, Northwestern uh, university of Wisconsin. And although I didn't visit it at all, they, cause of the distance I got accepted at Stanford. Uh-huh. And so Dee Dee and I are sitting there looking at these brochures and deciding, you know, what, 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 I mean, we're going to get married. Yeah. Where do we want to start live life, for the yeah. first four years of our life? And we were kind of kids of the 60s. I mean, people really wanted independence. Uh-huh. So we said, what could be better than moving 2,000 miles away from our, our folks? In fact, what we did is we got a map, and each of the places where <laughs> I had an opportunity to go to medical school, we, we took a string. And, and then Stanford was the longest string. <laughs> that was one element. The other element on the front of their brochure, the, they had a picture of a fountain. And then looking off into the distance were the mountains. And that is right. exactly why we chose Stanford. Oh, the other thing, the other thing, they had a five-year program. And again, maybe here are some insecurity coming in saying, gee, if you have five years to learn medicine, it's going to be better. You're going to learn more and be more secure in your profession than if it's just four years. So those three factors, the distance, the fountain and mountains, and then finally the five-year program is what attracted me there, although I only stayed four years. Uh, Okay. (laughs) But that's interesting. A lot of people think, you know, get into almost a rush as they look at all these years ahead and you found it comforting to think an extra year would make you more secure. Bing, we've talked a lot about the family you grew up in. How about you tell me a little bit about the family you have now? Well, we've talked a lot about Didi. We've been married for almost 55 years, I guess 54 and a half years. It's been almost all good. <laughs> You're a lucky man. <laughs> Which is wonderful, right? Yeah. And when I was in medical school, uh, before I had my OBGYN rotation and really understood things, Didi mysteriously became pregnant. And our, <laughs> and our son, Stephen, was born during my last year of medical school. And Stephen, who's a wonderful, a wonderful guy, is now 51 years old. Mm. I can't believe it myself. But um, the thing I really got a kick out about him is uh, that although he lived, he moved from California to Utah at the age of three months, when later when people asked where he was from, he would say California. Yeah, right, right. Because <laughs> it was kind of a sexier place yeah, to be from. It's cooler. Than, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. Than Utah. And well, while we're on Stephen, he uh, he he is uh, a very accomplished person. First, as an artist, he was a graphic designer, and then uh, then later decided that that wasn't satisfying him. So he really wanted to help people, mm. and he went to work for a Grace and went into homes and took care of people, and uh, and is has done that to an A triple plus thing. Where at a Grace. Everyone down there talks about him mm. because he d- has done caring for people so very, so very well. My daughter, who's two years younger than our son, uh, amazed me when one day she announced that she wanted to go to medical school. Uh-huh. 
And because she had always told me that she didn't totally admire my lifestyle. I can mm-hmm. remember times in Nebraska when she would be down in our basement, which was kind of a recreation room and a TV and stuff down there. And I'd come down and say uh, goodnight to her. And she said, oh, dad, uh, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, I've I've just been called into the hospital. And she thought leaving for the hospital at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night was not the kind of lifestyle she envisioned. Right. So she she actually uh, was a very, very good student, ended up going to medical school at the University of Nebraska. One of my great regrets is that I could have had her on my surgical team but I left for Wisconsin oh, just wow. just before she was a third year. Uh-huh. But anyway, while in medical school, she fell in love with Brad and they got married. Stephen is also married to a wonderful artist by the name of Leslie EY. But uh, she went on to do her residency at uh, the University of Indiana at Riley Children's Hospital and has been an absolutely fabulous pediatrician in the Twin Cities for the oh, past wonderful. many years. And has given us our two wonderful grandchildren, Caitlin and first, and then and then Ben. And Caitlin is a senior in high school, and Hallelujah has always loved the Badgers, and she's been accepted to the University of Wisconsin, and will be living in Madison for the next four years, starting in August. Oh, that is fantastic! Ben is a very bright young guy, two years younger than Caitlin, who. Um, uh, who is really into theater and uh, and and into more recently mock trials mm. in school, and now has decided he wants to become a lawyer and also major in theater and uh, along with other things in college. So, so the two of them are truly lights uh, in our life, and both of our kids have married very well. Kristen married a fellow by the name of Brad, who's been incredibly successful in, in, in medical device companies oh, great. and is a vice president in cardiovascular systems incorporated. So uh, we've got a very loving family. I've talked about my brother before. They live only 60 miles away or so. We get together with them and he's, and he's really one of my very best friends. So that's anyway, that's, that's the, that's the family as it is now. And and of course, the anchor of the whole thing throughout time has been Didi. And I know the way you talk about it, that your family and the tightness of it is what has allowed you to accomplish all the things I think that you have. Well, they, they've, they've put up with an awful lot. But <laughs> I know truly, that's true. And you probably feel this yourself. I do, uh, I do. You know, we travel so much as academic surgeons, and I, I really traveled a lot. And when the kids were teens, uh, Didi started traveling with me. She was in the home when they were young and mm-hmm. insisted on being in the home. But when they went off to school, Didi became a very successful scientific editor herself. And uh, and then as when the kids got older, she would travel some with me. And uh, But anyway, that, that both Didi and, and my two kids have put up with a lot. You're a lucky man. I am. <laughs> All right. So Stanford, it was beautiful, I'm sure. You went out there thinking primary care, which seems to fit, you know, how you describe growing up and maybe looking at your dad as a small town lawyer, you know, kind of emulating that, but in the medical field. I think field. so. Yeah. Right. And I loved growing up in Wapun. I mean, right. it was an idyllic youth. Right. My, my most memorable time, I, the longest period of my life was the four years I was in high school. Now, four years is like that. Right. But back then, four years just went on forever. Yeah. It was a delightful forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
what what did your um what career did your brother go into? I'm curious. My brother uh, went to work at my father's savings and loan, uh-huh. and then didn't want to get involved in the whole nepotism thing, uh-huh. and left and started buying apartments. And so he became kind of a a, a realist, a, a manager of of rental units, uh-huh. and had many rental units uh-huh. in Oshkosh, Fond du Lac, Ripon, up in Nina, and um, and then went into real estate and sold homes as well, and was uh-huh. an extremely successful realtor and uh, landlord. Oh uh-huh. wow! And his wife Helga, who's German, did all all of the mathematics of the business and the budgets and the rents and all that sort of stuff. And they were a dynamic duo in in his career. Oh, that's great. All right. So tell me how you got from primary care to surgery. My primary care career or aspirations lasted minus three days. (laughs) And uh, this is the honest to God truth. At Stanford, you had to buy your own microscope, Mm -hmm. you know, for your histology and pathology and all this stuff where you need a microscope. And uh, and people tended to buy microscopes from people that were graduating and they'd sell them. So right. this one guy said, hey, there's this guy whose name now I've forgotten. I shouldn't. But anyway, uh, I said, well, how do I find him? And he said, well, he's he, he does some research in this lab. So I, I went down there and I poked my head in and I said, hey, uh, I understand you have a, a microscope for sale. And the guy said, yeah. He said, uh, we're just, we're doing a heart transplant in a dog. And as soon as we finish, I'll come right out, show you the microscope. And if you want to buy it, you can buy it. And I said, a, a heart transplant? And they said, yeah, would you would you like to see it? He, Here, over there are these green things. Put on the, the green things you can, <laughs> and you can come and, and watch. And, and I didn't faint watching this heart transplant in a dog. And the next morning, I was part of the, that laboratory. Yeah. Uh, uh, and let me, this was. Uh, this guy was graduating. They needed another student to come in. And, and the, oh the Stanford gosh. deal, the Stanford deal was that during the first three years, all of which were preclinical, you would take half of the day and do something different. They thought it would develop you into a much better person mm. and physician if you had some other aspect to your life. Now, a lot of people did research, which I did in Norm Shumway's lab all the way through through medical school. Um, I was about to say this was Norm Shumway, wasn't it? Was it was Norm yeah. Shumway's lab. I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea who Norm Shumway was. So for those listeners who don't know, Norm Shumway is definitely the father of heart transplantation in the world. He was sort of scooped by Christian Barnard for the first heart transplant, but Norm Shumway not only did the first, you know, successful American transplants, but he's really the guy who made heart transplants. Well, guess work. what Christian Barnard did before he scooped Shumway? Again, I worked in the lab. Uh, yeah. Uh, was Dick Lauer in the lab Half too? a day. D- Dick Lauer preceded me. Ah, uh, yeah. He was not there when I, mm. I did not overlap with and him. And he went to Richmond. Yeah. yeah. Right. He went to Richmond and, and became chair there. Oh, I can't, re- I can't tell you how long it was before Barnard did his first heart transplant yeah. in South Africa, but he came to our lab mm. and actually watched me oh my gosh operate on a dog because he wanted to learn Shumway's technique right. of heart transplantation. 
I mean, yeah. his, his the first one was, I believe, December of '68. Interesting. He watched you, and then well, he, he also he, he didn't to, come to watch me. He came I to mean, watch you. He I did. Mean, <laughs> no, no, no. He. I, I mean, I, I was. We were doing valve surgery, and we we're doing heart transplants in the lab. Uh, and uh, to tell you the truth, I doubt that I was ever entrusted with a whole heart transplant <laughs> from beginning <laughs> to end. But uh, Bill Angel, who was a cardiac surgeon, and and was really the the cardiac fellow in in the lab was my mentor along with Norm Shumway mm-hmm. and would allow me to do a lot of surgery. I mean, before yes. I ever learned to do a hernia, I was putting valves and dogs. And, <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. What was Shumway like as a, did he take an interest in you even though you're a med student? Was he a real mentor? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, he was a mentor as far as surgical science, I think. And he was, uh, did you ever know Norm Shumway? I didn't know him, but I've, of course, know so much about him since my book. Oh, uh, he is so, uh, he was just incredibly charismatic. And and he and Christian Barnard overlapped. Yeah, had Minnesota. At right. Minnesota. And uh, there's a lot of sayings that he had. And we'd, I'd follow, I mean, I was just like a puppy dog. I'd follow him around on, on rounds. When he did his first heart transplant, I mean, he didn't want anything to do with the press if he could avoid it. We'd right. go down back stairways and avoid the cameras all over the place. Right. And I, I was one of one of his many puppy dogs uh, following uh, him along. But he had a lot of funny expressions. And he said, you know, Christian Barnard, uh, we overlapped in, in Minnesota. And uh, he said, yeah, University of Minnesota was a great place. I learned a lot there. And there were a group of us, and I don't know, it, it's conceivable, although I'm not sure. It might be that he even shared an apartment with Bernard and, and some other luminaries mm-hmm. that, that became luminaries in cardiac surgery. But he would say, he says, oh, we had a great time there. He says, we worked hard. We did a lot of science. We learned how to do cardiac surgery, he said. But when we got back to the apartment, the only time a light went on is when somebody opened the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> Right, which, which I thought was that great. sounds about right. They were, I mean, from what I know about them, they were quite different personalities. You know, uh, Barnard loved the press and loved uh, oh, very being different. famous, and Shumway hated that. Is there Shumway a, was pure substance, right? Pure and substance. I've only heard great things about him. Now, there's a story I believe, Bing, that you he called you in for the very first heart transplant. Is that true? Right. He did his first heart transplant. It was on a Saturday. And uh, the nurses then called medical students doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just something in the Stanford system. And uh, Didi and I were at our little shack that we lived in out there, $75 a month shack. And, um, and the phone rang on a Saturday morning. And it was uh, one of uh, Shumway's operating room nurses. And she said, uh, Dr. Rickers, Dr. Shumway is going to do his first heart transplant this afternoon, and he would like to invite you into the operating room. Oh, my gosh. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, he didn't ask the chair of the department. He didn't ask the dean. He asked the people that worked for him. And believe me, I was nothing special. Mm. I mean, I uh, it was that, but I was part of his team. He was a very loyal human being. And that was obviously a very memorable thing. Yes. And then later I was- That must given, have been 69, I'm guessing, or around there? I think it was 69. Yeah. I think it was 69. Right. I've got some, my, of course, my father, who who was a great guy and, and always was, was very proud of his kids, 
heard about this and it went into the Fond du Lac Commonwealth newspaper. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's a big deal. Yeah. So, I mean, so I do have some news clippings. I can, if I got dug it out, I could tell you the exact date. <laughs> That's amazing. Let me ask you this question because I've read a lot about Shumway. I've always been interested in these pioneers and their relationship to surgery. And like Christian Barnard was a man who was actually very nervous in the operating room, not necessarily tech, well, how he's described is not necessarily technically the best, but got great outcomes because he was all over the patients after. Shumway was described as a guy who just loved to operate, loved the operating room, loved to train. What was your relationship with surgery? Did you love it from the start? Did you find it overwhelming? How did, how did it hit you? Well, number one, I was surprised that I could be involved in it. And that blood that had always bothered me mm. just didn't affect me when, mm. I, when I watched operations. And I'd go in and watch Shumway operate. Yeah. And I guess um, when I started my clinical years, I only had one clinical year. It was my fourth year. And every rotate, I started on pediatrics. And when I got done with pediatrics, I was going to be a pediatrician. And then I went on medicine and I was on Dr. Holman's service, who his father was a very famous physician at Stanford. And I was going to be an internist. Yet I really was attracted to the operating room. I loved doing things with my hands. I loved seeing something finished, you know, mm -hmm. which I think surgeons like to see. So I was really very undecided. And then when I was given the opportunity to leave after uh, four years instead of five, I went to mm -hmm. my two main mentors of the time, one being Norm Shumway, and the other one being an incredible guy by the name of Robert Chase, who was a plastic surgeon, but chair of the department. I can mm -hmm. give you a very interesting story about him. <laughs> one of the remarkable people as far as just being a physician and a Mm -hmm. wonderful human being. But anyway, they both encouraged me that as you go through residency, to save a year now would mean a lot because there's so many things you can do, for example, research and all mm -hmm. of that in, in residency. You know Keith Reemsma from your, mm -hmm. okay, well, Keith Reemsma came to the lab one day likewise. And at that time, he was chairman at the University of Utah. And somehow we got to talking, again, he was looking at some of the stuff that we did there because he was interested in heart transplantation. And I don't know how it came up, but anyway, I was trying to decide what to do. And I said, I, you know, I, I think I want to be a surgeon, but I really feel incomplete because there's a lot of aspects of medicine. For example, I never took a psychiatry rotation. I never took a neurology uh, uh, clerkship or whatever. I felt I didn't have enough medicine. And he said, I've got the solution for you. He said, we have an excellent mixed medicine surgery internship at the University of Utah. Mm. Come on out there and and you can get both. And at that time, my vision was that if I went into surgery, I'd go back to Stanford and do cardiac surgery mm -hmm. with Norm Shumway. And he had this crazy program then where he would take people into his residency after two years of surgical training. So I was going to, uh, and, and in fact, some of the best cardiac surgeons that have ever lived that were trained by him never got boarded in cardiothoracic surgery because they did this crazy route of training. Oh, so he was the a, earliest pathway yes. trainer. Oh, so my plan was to go do what Reemsma said and go to Utah mm -hmm. and do that mixed uh, medicine surgery internship, confirming my desire to be a surgeon and then doing a year 
of general surgery at Utah. And uh, the guy who was the head of the general surgery rotation at Stanford was Bob Mason. And he invited me to come back then after that experience, okay. maybe do a year or two of general surgery and then go into Shumway. So, so that was the plan at that time. All right. And so in Reemsma, for those that don't know, is sort of an incredible pioneer in his own right. And also a huge personality. A huge personality. There were a lot of people who thought that the character of Hawkeye Pierce from MASH was based oh, yeah. on him because he showed up in Korea with like a footlocker of scotch. And he apparently was, a you know, just a huge personality, hilarious guy. The person who wrote the book MASH said, no, 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 it was actually based on himself. But um, lots of people thought that. And he also was one of the fathers of xenotransplantation and uh, had a rather illustrious career himself. So you went at over Columbia. To, yeah. at Columbia, right? Fascinating man. I never got a chance to meet him, but. Well, he deserted me. Is that right? He yeah. left you. you so, so you I went to Utah. To, I went to Utah yeah. and, and had, had this plan to do two years there and move back to Stanford. Well, what happened is that um, after my first year, uh, Rinsma left to become chair at Columbia. Right. And then the University of Utah had a search and attracted a guy by the name of Frank Moody, uh -huh. who, was at, who was chief of gastrointestinal surgery at Alabama, uh -huh. and he came to be chair of surgery at Utah. Okay. Now, Utah was a little backward place, especially then. But Frank Moody was was such an inspirational sort of leader. I, I can't say that he was an organized chair. <laughs> I don't mean that. But he just inspired you. And, and out of that little Utah residency, there's something like seven, eight, or nine chairs of surgery oh, wow. came out of it. And so he came there and he talked me into staying into the Utah program. I did get the call from Bob Mason and I said, gee, Dr. Mason, you people have been so wonderful to me, but I, but I, I've really am taking a different direction now. Uh -huh. So after a couple years of uh, a year of internship, one year of residency, I went into Frank Moody's research lab mm -hmm. and studied liver regeneration. During that year in the lab, Sheila Sherlock, who was uh, kind of almost the mother of hepatology, visited from the Royal Free Hospital in England, and the reason she came, she came to give medicine grand rounds because uh, the chief of gastroenterology at Utah had spent a year with Sheila Sherlock. And she was really fun. I mean, and I got involved a little <laughs> bit in her visit. And then I went to Frank Moody and I said, Chief uh, Dr. Moody, what if I did a second year in the lab, but did it in London mm. with Sheila Sherlock? So he said, I think that's a good idea. So I wrote a letter to her and she accepted me. And then the next year, after spending a year in the lab with Frank Moody, Dee Dee and I and our two kids that were one and three years old moved to London, England and had the year of our life, really. And this was lab work. You weren't operating there. You were. No. Yeah. I, well, I, I talk about insecure. Okay. So here, here's what happens. We go to London, England. And number one, Sheila Sherlock's really, really likes Americans. Mm. And she's also, for an internist, a very aggressive personality. Mm. Did you ever meet? I don't know her, no. Oh, well, she, she's no longer living. She died mm -hmm. of breast cancer. But she had these incredible sessions where she would have whoever was passing through London. It might be a hematologist. It might be a surgeon. It might be uh, whatever specialty. She would have them in and, and invite them and almost humiliate them as she always presented the patients herself and then would pepper them with questions. 
So if 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 there was a hematologist coming through, she'd she'd present a patient with hemochromatosis uh-huh. and chronic liver disease or whatever. Well, anyway, she also did this with me. Here I am. I have had one and a half years of surgical training. And if it was a surgical issue with one of her patients at her conference, she'd always say she called me Dr. Rikers. She mm-hmm. said, Dr. Rikers, what should we do? So I wrote home and I said, ship me my my Schwartz, yeah, right, your Schwartz yeah. <laughs> textbook because I'm getting asked all these surgical questions. And, you know, I'm going to be responsible for diminishing <laughs> the population of Great Britain right, here right. because because whatever I see say surgically is what she does. Oh my <laughs> so uh, again, I, I really needed books and I needed I needed some security. Blankets That's incredible. In London, yeah. Did she ever have uh, Roy Collin out there while you were there? Was he? Uh, he was uh, out at, at Royal Free at one point. Roy, yeah. Sir Roy, he was one of the fathers of the oh, yeah. Roy Kahn. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I got I, I met Roy Kahn. I guess uh, I've met Roy Kahn through the annals of surgery rather uh, than but oh she talked about Roy Kahn yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he's the Well, he was the father of liver transplantation yeah, in Great Britain. Yeah. He was I the, you said Cone. No, no, sorry. Because there was a Roy oh, Cohn. Yeah, very different character. At yes. Stanford. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah. And a lawyer also. We'll forget about that. Oh, so, that guy too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. a bad name to have. Okay. Yeah, bad name to have, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, that's an amazing – it does feel like the word serendipity is the right word for you. It almost feels like you've stumbled into a bunch of amazing setups. Um, but I'm sure some of I'll it – I'll tell is- you what. I've also got a spiritual side to me. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's all serendipity or whether I have just been blessed. The yeah. guy with – which I really consider – no special talents that have been given opportunity beyond belief throughout my career. Well, I can give you example me, after example. Yeah. Yeah. Something tells me from how I know you and the way you treat people that it it isn't just luck or being blessed. I mean, I think people take to you because you're you know you treat people so well and you're well, such yeah, a kind person. And, it, maybe yeah. maybe that's true. And when I got into the leadership stuff, mm-hmm. I uh, like. Your your friend Bruce Gewertz, mm. I think emotional intelligence is the most yes. important thing you can possess, and and I and I'm I guess I do possess yeah, some of it, no question. But it, yeah, for example, you probably think I'm an extrovert, right? Yeah, I mean that's my experience. When with I you. take the Meyer Briggs thing, yeah, I, I'm just barely on the extrovert side. So I've got introvert qualities as well as extrovert yeah. qualities. Yeah, I am an absolute introvert compared to my father, who is a mm. very charismatic extrovert right so but you know i have you read the the book um uh, what is it about the introverts and extroverts uh, quiet i have not fabulous although book. i should it's a fabulous book it's and and i learned so much from that and what what it teaches you is that introverts have so much to offer mm-hmm. the world that they don't because they don't speak out so i took it upon myself they said as a leader what you need to do is in a comfortable way, draw stuff out of your introverts because usually introverts have yeah, more right. to offer than extroverts because they really think about yeah. things before yeah. they blurt them out. And uh, it, it's a marvelous book. Oh, wow. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody. Yeah, well, that sounds like something right. I would want to read. It's funny, I wouldn't think of you as introverted. Uh, maybe you're in. I'm a mixture, I think. Right. That's what I think. Maybe I I'm have. a compensated introvert. Some people, I've heard that called an ambivert. An ambivert. <laughs> you're okay. an extrovert introvert know. or an introverted extrovert. Well, that's really interesting. All right. So then you returned 
to Utah. Um, let me ask you this question. As you were going through your training, were you ever thinking at that point, like, not only am I going to be a surgeon, but I'm going to be a chairman at some point? Or Well, that's an interesting thing, too. I did a fellowship <clears throat> before I went back to Utah on the faculty, where I was for seven years before I went to Nebraska. I did a fellowship with Dean Warren. Mm-hmm. who is kind of, of the one of the fathers of surgical hepatology yeah, right. uh, and and especially in portal hypertension. And I was just kind of, uh, the, the deal that he did with me is that for the first three-fourths of the year, I worked in his clinical research center and did research and got involved in this randomized trial of distal splenorenal renal shunt mm-hmm. versus non-selective shunt. And, and, and that aspect of things. And then the last three months I was there, it, which I still feel a little bit badly about, he took me onto a service. And instead of his chief resident doing the shunts, he allowed me to do the shunts. Mm. Again, I mean, I felt kind of insecure about all this. And that, you know, th- those guys at Emory were really good surgeons. Mm. I mean, they, they had that big trauma hospital, right. uh, county hospital. Is that Cher, Cher, uh, uh, Cher uh, Grady? Grady. Grady, yeah, right. Grady. Right. And so these guys, you know, operated very independently. And, and here I was kind of a, I was a junior faculty in a sense as I was a mm. fellow. I was an attending at the VA and helped the residents at the VA, uh, probably most of whom were better clinical uh, technical surgeons than I was at mm. that point in my, in my training. But one day, uh, Dean Warren had me in his office. I can't even remember the reason. And he said to me, he said, you know, Bing, you're going to have an opportunity to be a chairman. I said, what? He said, if, if that comes up and you ever need advice, feel free to give me a call, which I certainly did. Um, huh. and, I, and he was one of my, my, my key mentors, really, were Shumway, Dean Warren, especially Frank Moody. Frank Moody gave me so many opportunities mm. and got me into so many societies. But then as far as I briefly mentioned, a mentor that was an incredible example of how to marry surgery with being just a good human being and being considerate and helpful of others was Bob Chase. Mm. Can I tell you a brief story about that? Of Bob course, Chase? yeah. Bob Chase was a plastic surgeon and took the chair at Stanford as a quite young guy. He came from Yale. Uh-huh. And uh, the way Stanford grew once they moved to their Palo Alto campus from San Francisco was they must, I mean, I think they had unlimited funds and they recruited a bunch of Nobel Prize winners, uh, several shining stars and Ye- and Chase had been at Yale. So here was this guy and he was just the nicest guy. Now going through medical school, who was the most important person here? Well, Didi. Dee Dee mm. got a job. She was our only income. And she, just by chance, looking for jobs, she's an English literature major. What kind of job does an English <laughs> literature major get? Well, she was also an incredible typist and editor and stuff mm-hmm. and things. So she ended up being oh, in a chairman's office. You know, there's levels of secretaries. So she was probably on the second or third tier down mm. of secretaries. But it was Bob Chase's office. And one day she mentioned that. Her husband was a medical student. He says, oh, have him come in. So I met Dr. Chase, which, mm. was, which was really a big deal for me. I mean, mm. an incredible big deal for me. And he talked to me for 10 or 15 minutes. And then uh, th- this to me is one of the most phenomenal things I've ever heard about an academic surgeon. That was about my own. I mean, he'd say hi to me and 
Dee Dee worked for him. She he she didn't have he did not have a lot of direct contact with Dee Dee. Well, he was invited to the University of Wisconsin as a visiting professor by mm. the plastic surgeons here. We didn't know anything about it. Well, we get a call from Dee Dee's parents and said, "You won't believe what happened to us." Uh, Dr. Robert Chase came and, and and visited us at our home. Oh my goodness! So this guy was a visiting professor. I don't know exactly all what happened, but I suspect he told whoever invited him, Dave DeBell, uh-huh. probably, right. and said, gee, I'd like a free hour and I'm going to rent a taxi and I want to go out to this address on Owen Drive where one of my secretary's parents live, where oh, she grew up. And he went out and spent an hour with her parents. Now, that's incredible. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah. I mean, think of all your visiting jobs and how busy you are right. and so forth. And, uh, and hey. to do that, I, to me, that I mean, I, I, I get goosebumps every time yeah. I even tell that story. And obviously, he admired the heck out of my lovely wife. Right. Uh, who, so who, yeah. again, serendipity. Dee right. works in the chairman of surgery's office, introduces me to the chairman of surgery. Right. And as you know from your time when I was chair here and you were a faculty member, how Dee Dee and I were really a team. Oh, no I doubt. mean, she she was almost as much chairman as I was. Um, well, and, you, like a few of us, were lucky enough to marry up. There's no question. Yeah. Well, I sure did. I sure <laughs> Which is did. maybe the secret to your success. Well, it sure makes it a lot easier to do something like being a chairman if your significant other or your yeah. partner or spouse or whatever uh, is is willing to pitch in and do it with you. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, Dee Dee is one of the major reasons for my success because she was kind of the mother of both surgery departments that I yeah, that I chaired and, and just brought a really good, caring, friendly yeah. culture to the, both departments, I think. Now, let me ask you this. So just for our listeners that don't know, um, being mentioned that he trained with Dr. Warren in shunt surgery, and that's almost anachronistic now. Um, this was a whole area of surgery for portal hypertension, cirrhosis, liver failure, where you essentially would reroute the portal blood flow to take care of problems like ascites or fluid on the belly or bleeding varices. And it was a huge operation, pretty risky, but had success. And it's basically a field that doesn't even exist anymore, much because of Bing. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, (laughs) Is that why you went to work with Dr. Warren? You got interested in those operations? Yeah, well, yeah. The research that Frank Moody had me do was in liver regeneration. So I was doing liver resections in dogs and in rats Mm -hmm. and injecting them with endocyanin grain and quantitatively measuring their, their, looking for a good quantitative test of hepatic function. Mm -hmm. And it was this endocyanin grain test that we were doing and uh, did several papers with that with Dr. Moody. Well, I enjoyed the surgery. So uh, again, after I came back from uh, Sheila Sherlock saying, and then continued and finished my surgical training, I, I mentioned to Frank, what would you think, or to Dr. Moody, at that, certainly at that time, to Dr. Moody, what would you think if I went and did a fellowship with Dean Warren? It's the only surgical sort of hepatology fellowship, mm. I think, in, in, in maybe in the world or in the United States at that time. I mean, you're talking about 1977 and liver resections were just kind of coming on yeah. and so forth. Again, getting his advice, I went there and um, 
had a great year. You know, it was a shunt surgery that got Starzl interested in liver transplant some years before that. Did you ever think about going into transplant? Well, here's what happened with that. Well, I did and I didn't. Uh When I was at Utah, I I became interim chief of general surgery when Frank Moody left to become chair of surgery at, at the University of Texas in Houston. And then I started getting a few little queries about whether I mean to submit your CV and stuff that you do. And one of them came and we and then when Frank left, I, I became an internal candidate at Utah mm. for the chair of surgery, which You were young at this point, weren't you? Yeah, I was in my thirties. Oh I goodness. mean it was uh it, it it was really kind of inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and very, very nerve wracking. Yeah. With these people that I so admired that, you know, people on the search committee were the chair of this and the chair yeah. of that and so forth. So, uh, but during that process, I was invited to submit my CV to Nebraska. I didn't know anything about Nebraska. Mm. So I did. And and then they invited me for an interview. And so I went out there and I was fascinated because the chairman of medicine was a internationally recognized hepatologist by the name of Mike Sorrell. I don't know if that rings a bell. Mike now mm. is, must be in his late 80s. But again, just an incredibly charismatic guy. And liver transplant was just coming on with Tom Starzl. Right. This was the early 80s. And uh, I was interested in liver transplantation and thought it would really be fun mm. to get a liver transplant program going if I went somewhere and became a, a chair. And so I, I ended up taking the chair at Nebraska, which Didi also played a huge role in. We were going through the process in Utah. They had made up their minds. And and then we had the thing from Nebraska that had been actually offered. And I was doing a visiting professorship in Toronto with Bernie Langer, mm-hmm. the name you probably mm-hmm. know. And Langer got a call. Uh, his office got a call from Didi who said, I've had enough of this hovering over what we're going to do. I'm bringing the kids to Omaha and I've changed your plane reservation (laughs) to go from Toronto instead of to Salt Lake City to go to Omaha. We're going to meet there and decide whether or not you're going to do this because we'd been, you know, and we had been very unsettled about the whole thing. So we went there and, and then I decided to go there. As chairman. As chairman. And how old were you now? I, ex- I I accepted it when I was 39 and I went there when I was 40. 40, okay. And and fortunately, it was a very small department because I had no idea what I was doing. And as the department grew, it gave me a chance to grow with it. I was successful at Stanford for one major, two major reasons. One, at, again, is Didi. She and Nebraska. Just, Nebraska. I mean, yeah. excuse me, at Nebraska. One was Didi. But the other thing, my first recruit that I made was Bud Shaw. Bud Shaw, yeah. Okay. So Bud Shaw came out there with a team, mm-hmm. and and he had this huge package, not personal package he wanted, but he wanted to bring his augment procurement person. He wanted to bring a nurse. He wanted to bring another transplant surgeon, a whole package. I went to to the hospital uh, director at, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center at the time, a guy by the name of Bob Baker, and within hours, he'd signed off on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'll pay for it all. Sounds like a great idea. So he was pretty visionary, thinking that he was going to... Yeah, and you brought Bud Shaw from Pittsburgh, where he was working with right. Stars. So Bud, right. that, then I, I, he, Bud came about one year after I went there. And Bud, much more so than myself, put Nebraska on the map 
And within a year, he was doing 100 liver transplants mm. a year. And there was no competition. Right. So then I, he said, well, Bing, would you like to do liver transplants? And I'd been doing a lot of donor runs for them. Yes. I've learned more about liver surgery doing donor hepatectomies than anything else. So I, I was- I love that. that. I think you told me this before that like you're the chairman and you were flying out in the middle of the night to get livers so that Budshaw could sew them in during the day. I think you had a story like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story. Yeah. Mike Sorrell, who is the chair of medicine, wanted to see a donor operation. Mm. So we, at that time, we usually went, we went all over the country. Yeah, because right. We there were only a few centers. Jets, yeah. Only a few programs. Yeah. And uh, so uh, Mike said, can I go sometime? And I said, sure. You know. So anyway, we happened to run into Jerry Turcott, who was there getting the mm. kidneys. We are getting the liver, but he was getting the kidneys for the University of Michigan. Michigan right. And uh, and, he, and and I introduced, he knew uh, Mike Sorrell, knew of him. Mm. I introduced him to Mike Sorrell. And he said, that's interesting. He says, uh, it takes two chairs <laughs> to get a donor liver for the University of Michigan. I like that. I like that. We yeah. Only, yeah, send the big wigs out. <laughs> that's great. So, so you that, had to fly on separate planes like the president and the vice president. Right. <laughs> And and portal hypertension even then was beginning to slide a bit. Was it with liver transplant coming yeah, along? Right. And um, so, Bud actually asked me. He said, "Do you want to do liver mm. transplants?" And I thought about it, and I said, "You know, but this is Bud's program, yeah, and I have no business doing that, right?" So I stayed away from it. And I, give him I space, probably did yeah. about twenty five, thirty donor things. And then I realized being up all night doing the donor thing and coming back, these transplant surgeons were all rested and uh, they would do the transplant and then go in and go to bed if, if yeah. the transplant was during the night where I had a full day of my own yeah, surgery right. plus the administrative stuff. Yeah. So after a while, I woke up to the fact that maybe being one of their lackeys wasn't the best it wasn't the way, to do, way it. to do it. But anyway, but hey, well, now that you're retired, I wonder if we could send you out on some. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But anyway, uh, uh, Bud, uh, you know, made a, a world famous yeah, yeah. world transplant program at the time. And in many ways, I, I rode on his coattails. He didn't ride on mine. And yeah, I, that's I, a beautiful I guess thing we to were say. a good team. A good team. You know, a lot of people have asked me over the years, like, why are some of the big transplant programs in places like Nebraska, Wisconsin, some of these Midwestern centers? And it really was because in these early days when after 83 with Cyclosporin, when transplant was coming a reality, some real visionaries went to these programs, were given the space to do it and built these huge programs. And some of the bigger academic centers didn't take that leap at that time. That's how I see it. I think Wisconsin started the same year we did. Yeah. Maybe one did, maybe 80, was it 84 when Bungie came? Yeah, I mean, the livers, it was right around there. I mean, he was with Bud Shaw at, right, you know, exactly. At, but uh, I, I think they may have started right one there. year before yeah. us here. But somehow, you know, I think the difference, the reason that Nebraska was was successful faster than Wisconsin mm. was we had this hepatologist yeah. who, who was an absolutely nationally renowned hepatologist right. and had all kinds of contacts and people would send us livers. Send the patients. So let me, patience, yeah. let me ask you this. So we talked about how you were doing shunt surgery. You ended up running the trial that put that surgery out of business, essentially. So there's something we call a TIPS catheter, and it's essentially a big straw that the radiologist shoved through the liver to help portal blood flow flow through the liver so that it can sort of, in a way, bypass it and people, their ascites would get better and their varices would get better. And 
that was an alternative to the shunt surgery. I mean, this is a poor man's explanation, but nevertheless. And I imagine in the beginning, people probably thought tips was crazy and would never work. Um, I was one of them. I would imagine, right? Because that's how these new things work. So how did you end up running this trial of surgery versus tips? Again, I did not initiate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had done a couple of randomized controlled trials. Uh, The one when I was with Warren, and then I did a randomized controlled trial where I got very good NIH funding for of the uh, distal splinter renal shunt versus scleral therapy, which were kind of the competing mm-hmm. entities of the of the time. And a person that followed me in the fellowship at Emory to work with Dean Warren was a guy by the name of Mike Henderson, who became who later became chief of surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. And Mike wrote the grant that I mean I did some of it, but he he was the main principal investigator. I was a principal investigator for our site. He had three hospitals, the Cleveland Clinic, us, and I can't remember who else, mm. to, acquire, to accrue patients for the randomized trial of shunt versus tips. Mm. And what ended up with that trial was that there were no significant differences. So with tips being less invasive, yeah. That immediately went up. Personally, at the end of it, I felt that there were still very nice places for yeah. a distal spleno-renal shunt, especially for people that were really doing well and were going to be long-lived. Because right. at that time, tips would fail over time, right, much right. more so than it does now with the covered shunts. But uh, tips being equal overall, statistically, won, won the what? thing. So, yeah, I... I I was one of three principal investigators that did uh-huh. what I did in. Yeah, I know. Was that hard to accept or were you? No. No, no. no. It's it called was... medical progress. Yeah, no, it's yeah. great, right? It's great. And I think about what they do now. They've advanced so much in that technology. So then you had to shift gears a little bit. You got heavier into liver resection and pancreatic surgery. Well, that's um, interesting too. When uh, when I came to Wisconsin. And tell me, why did you come to Wisconsin? Just because you were from Wisconsin and the opportunity arose? No, or No, I, I, I well, I was at, at Nebraska again. Thanks to Bud Shaw, mm. I was thought to be a great chair because <laughs> because we were doing all these innovative things at this unknown place. Okay, I hope Bud listens to this, and I'd like to get Bud on if I can. Maybe oh, you dude, can help me. Bud, and, be a great interview, and then we'll see if he gives you credit or not. Yeah. But. Well, well, yeah. Bud and I, I mean, listen. and Bud wrote a wonderful it, book. Everyone should read last night in the OR. Just yeah. a little plug for. I mean, it wasn't just Bud. We had some really wonderful people at Nebraska that made that department go. Mm. But it was kind of, yeah, I love, we both loved, Didi and I loved being there. And then opportunities started coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I got calls from a number of places and even looked at some jobs, but decided uh, that we really couldn't move. And then the dean, who is, Phil Farrell at the time mm-hmm. called and said that uh, Fred Belzer was dying actually mm-hmm. at the time and that they needed to get a new chair and that my name had come up and they knew that I grew up in Wisconsin. So he invited me to come out and I, I kind of half agreed. And then Deed and I and the kids sat down, we can't do it. So I called Phil Farrell. Before I called Phil Farrell, I actually called Fred Belzer mm-hmm. And I say, Fred, I feel terrible. I a couple of years before that, I had been his visiting professor here, and Fred and I really hit it off. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of the same philosophies about training and and this and that. So anyway, uh, I felt badly since he may have suggested me. I don't know who's uh, all suggested me to 
to, to submit my CV here. So I called him first and said, I, I really feel badly, but we just feel from a family perspective, we, we can't move. And, mm -hmm. and he said, I've been through that. He said, I, I was asked to go back to Yale and decided not to because I really enjoyed Wisconsin. And so then it, their search went on for six months and they hadn't settled. And then it was at a convenient time. It was the summer, uh, it was late summer and, uh, they invited me again. Mm. And I said, yeah, the biggest resistance to this thing was Didi, much more so than myself. Okay. <laughs> and, and so they invited us again. And so we came to Wisconsin and thinking, you know, we'll just take a peek, but we aren't going to be interested. Well, on the first visit, there was a, a Packer preseason game mm. in Madison, which they did that. Yeah. Right. And Ben Graff, was doing the medical stuff for there. And so I was interviewing with somebody during that. He said, uh, came by and he said, uh, Bing, would you like to go to the Packer preseason game? It's going to be at uh, Camp Randall tomorrow. I said, Ben, why do you think I'm in town? I'm not here just to, I <laughs> right. says, I have tickets for the game. He said, no, I mean, would you like to be on the sidelines oh with me? So, you know, in the preseason game, they didn't, play the starters the whole time. Right. So I watched much of that preseason game sitting right next to uh, Reggie White. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Standing next to Reggie That's White. Incredible. About halfway yeah, up. Yeah, he, he probably was, looked <laughs> rather big next to you. <laughs> so anyway, that, and, then, and then we had a hard decision on whether to come back for a second visit. And they knew my addiction, I guess, which I guess it is, for sports. Mm. And on the second visit, uh, they, uh, first of all, I... I I don't think it had a lot to do with me having come from Wisconsin. Mm. It certainly had something to do with Wisconsin's sports scene. But it, it, I thought I had kind of done everything I could do at Nebraska. Nebraska yeah. had the problem of having the medical center 50 miles away from the major university. So collaborations were difficult yeah, right. to move it ahead. And Wisconsin was one of the major research universities yeah. of the country. And I thought if we're going to move a department and the research sense of things, uh, I'm, I'm, I've gone about as far as I can at Nebraska. Mm. Didi was more hesitant, but on the second visit, what really did me in, they said, oh, we have a, you probably heard this story, but I, they said, we have an interview for you outside of the hospital. And it was with Barry Alvarez. No, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I spent an hour with Barry Alvarez. Uh -huh. and, and He was they, the coach. <laughs> the football team probably at the time. Football team. And then and became athletic, athletic director, director. Right. right. Well, anyway, they had just been clobbered by Colorado, I think, in their first mm. game or whatever. And that was the timing. It was in the fall. Yeah. I thought I was interviewing. And um, He's and I said, listen, coach, you've got all kinds of things to do. Oh, and he, he also had a Nebraska connection because he was a linebacker for the University of Nebraska. Oh, yeah, right. I did okay. That. So yeah. that, that was the connection. So so I was talking with him, and then I said, I, I ought to get out of your hair. You've got to prepare for your next game and everything. And he says, wait just a minute. So I went to the back of his his office and came out with a jersey with my name on it. Oh, nice. And I actually played freshman football here when I was uh -huh. an undergrad. And he, he said, Bing, we've retired your number. <laughs> we want you to come to Wisconsin. That's awesome. Yeah. What, a, what a recruitment. <laughs> So any indecision that I had, yeah. had was resolved right there by Valerie's office. But uh, and then and then you know, Didi, you'd think that Didi would be the one that would want to move back here because yeah. she grew up in Madison and we met here. Uh, and then we got married and left for thirty years. Yeah. And then 
But she wasn't as enthused about coming back as I was. And uh, her mother was still alive. Her father had passed away. And she just says one sibling who lived here. Mm. You can't relive the past right, right. Uh, with friends or, you know, right, you have events so much. Yeah. So she and she was more aware of that uh, th than I was probably. But we came back and mm. and she's just a great team player and yeah. and uh, became a, a wonderful part of the department, really. And it's I think it's been a. I had a very good 12 years. As yeah, you chair. were chair here. You must have come like 95 or 96. Came in 96. 96, right. And, and stepped down as chair in 2008, mm -hmm. stopped operating in 2009, and totally retired. And then my successor, who was a tremendous chair, mm -hmm. Craig Kent, invited me to come back part time to mentor people, yeah. which he felt he didn't do as well as he'd liked and didn't have time to do because the chairmanship had become more complicated. It was simpler, I think, when I was When chair. you were there. Yeah. I mean, you had an incredible run at Wisconsin, not only building the program, training, increasing the research. The residents just loved you. I mean, even a good friend of ours, they named their son after you. Um, that must have been pretty touching. Uh, that was very touching. The laws yeah. uh, who well, listened to this just, podcast. They were just good people. Yeah. I mean, we, we had an awful lot... We had one marvelous faculty, and uh, I think people enjoyed each other. And I mean, it was a good feeling, and and I think it was a, a friendly yet very effective residency. And let me let me um in the last few minutes dig down on a few things you've mentioned a few times. What was the word? You didn't use the word anxiety, but use the word um, uh, oh insecure insecurity. Like, do you consider yourself an insecure person? Do you? Just think that you want to really think out major decisions. What is your assessment of that? No, I, I don't know how. I mean, I've never been in anyone else's skin. Yeah. But if I go back and think about, I think one of the reasons that I didn't uh, go to a an Ivy League school, mm. I think insecurity play, played a little bit of a, a role in that. And then also when again when I went to Stanford, I that I, I felt very insecure at first, mm. and then over time you feel better about things. There are a lot of bright kids in the in the class, the class was only 65. I don't know what it is now at Stanford Medical School. And then I even think when uh, when I was applying for residency, one thing, uh, Rimsma's explanation attracted me to Utah, but I also interviewed at UCSF. Mm -hmm. And I can remember interviewing with Bill Blaisdell, and I can mm -hmm. remember him, honest to God, this is, you're talking about 1970. He took me out onto the lab. And and said, look at this little room here. He says, this is where you come in at five in the morning and make the IV solutions mm -hmm. for your patients for that day. And yeah, and you know, why didn't I go to to San Francisco? You know, it was really heavy hitting surgery. Yeah. Uh, Utah seemed like a more gentle, yeah. in, 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 gentle in, introduction into surgery. Did you, when you would operate, did you ever feel insecure or anxious about it? Or were you very comfortable? No, I, no, I never felt anxious about these yeah. things. It was more uh, hesitant okay. to, to things. I mean, you felt insecure in the operating room, I'm oh, sure. Oh, no question. I yeah. mean, I talk about this a lot. So I have too. Like I talk about, so Tom Starzl wrote the, in Puzzle People. Oh yeah, I've he, read Puzzle People. Which everyone should read. And I've talked about it before, but he, he kind of wrote that he, couldn't speak before operations. He would get very, very nervous. Um, well, Bud's got a lot of stories about him, too. Yeah. And has stories. And I talked to him about that before he died, not, uh, Starzl, and he really said that was the case. 
I don't feel that, but I definitely am very, very aware of the things that can go wrong. I feel comfortable in the operating room, maybe more nervous outside of it. I'll tell uh, you what, if I think in my surgical career, my most insecure times, mm-hmm. I became very focused very early on hepatobiliary. Yet I was uh, throughout my time at, at Nebraska and then probably half of my time at Wisconsin, I was on call at night for trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and for other things, colorectal and this and that. And I get the call at night and I can remember driving in, you know, being asked to do something that I didn't regularly do. I would just be running through my head, you know, yeah. this. And if, if this goes wrong, what do I do there? Right. And, and I mean, I think that reflects some insecurity. Yeah, right. And then when I uh, became chair at Nebraska, I can remember the gastroenterologist who really thought they controlled things mm-hmm. and were telling me that, you know, we refer patients to you, but we tell you what to do with them. That And we got rid of that, by the way, over time. But <laughs> but I, I went out, uh, they took me out for dinner one night and we we're going through all of these things. And and I can remember almost having an anxiety reaction over that. Yeah. And I can remember being so frustrated when I couldn't find the room for Grand Rounds when I came mm-hmm. to Wisconsin. I was brand new here and I need to go to Grand, but I have, where the hell's the room? And, and, and every, uh, people ask me, you know, what is it like to move? I, I've, yeah. I've only, I mean, I was at Utah, moved to Nebraska, then moved to Madison. Well, each time, at least, and maybe it's my just in myself. You really have to to prove yourself all over again. And I can really, when I came here, I don't know what people had heard about me or mm. whatever, but I'd be doing a liver resection or a Whipple or something else, and I'd look up with those windows by the yeah. scrub sinks, and there'd be people watching me <laughs> to see if I could operate. <laughs> right. So I, uh, you know, it's a. I guess it's maybe it's it's something that I don't need, but I have in my own DNA that that I feel that when I'm taking on something new that I so have to prove myself mm-hmm. to be worthy of what I'm doing, that that makes me a little bit insecure. I mm-hmm. don't know. Did you find it um, hard to deal with complications? Did you have really good? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, wrote a, I wrote an editorial about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dee Dee knew when I had a complication mm-hmm. in the hospital. And and it gets worse as you get older. Yes. You're, you're facing some tough times. I, I know. I know. And it's already hard for me. The so. more experienced you get, the more you yes. expect of yourself. Yes. And even I, even I mean, my worst memories of surgery, I mean, I can't remember it anywhere near as well, the successes, but yes. but complications that I know that I caused, Yes. I still wake up at night thinking about still it. Still thinking about it. Occasionally. I know it's not every night and it doesn't torture me. But when I had those complications and they're in the hospital, what you could see, as you know, when families come, they review your past because it's all available to them now online. And patients want to feel that they're being operated on the very best. And they convince themselves of that right. by looking at your crazy CV right. or whatever. Well, then when you get a complication, and whenever I had a complication, I would see that patient two or three times a day. Right. And the family's in there and you, you're, you're, you're trying to ease their burden and say, I think, you know, we got a little progress this day. But as time goes on, let's say it's a pancreatic leak or something. As time goes on, you just see them look at you with more and more doubting eyes. (laughs) I don't think we took 
grandpa to the best, to the know, best. Right? like we thought <laughs> not at one time. <laughs> and, and, and Didi knew when I had a yeah. complicated patient in the hospital that wasn't doing well because I was just not very nice when I came home. Right. And it is. It's, it it's is the hardest part of surgery, isn't it? I, I think Absolutely the, yeah. the hardest part of surgery. That's something I didn't realize in my training. I was so nervous about being able to do the operations. But I didn't realize. I always thought there'd be this epiphany and you just always know what to do. But I didn't realize those nights when you're lying in bed and you're regretting something or frustrated that something happened and finding ways to kind of manage that is difficult. Well, having a complication that's life-threatening or prolonging the patient's stay is bad enough. But I have at least four or five instances where I know mm. that something I did, I could have done better Yes, that resulted in that complication. Those are the worst ones yes. by far. Yes. And um, yeah, I think that's I think that's that's very difficult. Well, for our listeners, we all get them. That's the way it is. And, you know, you got to talk to your partners. You got to be honest with the patient, but you got to still be able to go home and enjoy your family and, you know, still find ways to live. The key component to um, <clears throat> emotional intelligence mm. is self-awareness. And so if you're blessed with self-awareness, which I guess I am, yes. because I, I, I think I know what my strengths and my weaknesses are, that's part of the whole thing. I think I know the bad and good impacts I have on other people. And if you don't have good self-awareness, I don't think you can be an effective leader. Yeah. Uh, we all know people, the minute they come into the room, they're a tremendously talented person that has no self-awareness and within minutes pisses everybody yes. off that's, that's sitting there. That's what the lack of self-awareness is. And, and I've seen that cause uh, failure in division chiefs and other leaders more so than any other single thing. Now, I guess I have it because I got through 24 years of chairmanship yes. and didn't get fired. But the bad side of it is what we're just talking about. Yeah. You're very self-aware and, and you and you can't uh, negotiate your way out of the fact that you caused that right. complication. Right. So that's, that's, the, that's the negative side of self-awareness, I guess. Yeah, I love how you put that. I think that's very true. Let me ask you this question. So now you're retired. How has that transition been? Do you, do you have to plan for it? Do you miss surgery? Are you enjoying it? What's your assessment? Again, I tell you, Josh, serendipity. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I had always thought when I stopped, I was just going to, I had made up my mind many years ago that I'm going to stop operating at age 65. Mm. The other deal I made with the division chiefs that were here when I came, because some of them were quite a bit older than I was. And somehow I negotiated with them with our administrative council meetings that we should have a rule in the department that leadership positions, you can either be in them till age 65 or for 10 years if it's mm -hmm. later than that. And then we will turn ourselves over. So I had decided a long time ago and made a pact with those people who, in fact, honored it from Dave Euling to Chuck Ford to Andy McBeth on down the line. Dave DeBell, mm -hmm. all stopped doing uh, their their chair jobs for their divisions at age 65. I felt I had to do it myself. And plus, with the type of surgery I did, I didn't want to have someone knock on my door and say, listen, Dr. Rickers, uh, you, you once did this quite well, but I think it's time yeah. to step away from this stressful surgery. So I'd made up my mind for some time that I would step away from surgery and from the chair at age 65. 
I was also a big believer in is that the worst thing that can happen to a new chair is for the old chair to hang around. Mm. So I told Craig Kent that I'm leaving when, when you come. Space, yeah. I, I stayed for a little while to kind of train yeah. my replacement, who was Emily. And and then I left. Well, serendipity. I, I had become editor of the Annals of Surgery. So I had that that to keep me busy. Mm. I got along well with my successor, Greg mm. Kent, who invited me back to do some stuff that was very meaningful to me. Mm. The other thing that I advised everybody is that during, I, I look at life as three phases, education, 33 years, vocation, 33 years, and then retirement, 33 years, yeah. which takes you to 99, 99. Okay. And what's very important, we really plan for phase one, and out of phase one, we really plan for phase two. And I think where people really fall short is not planning for phase three. So what I did uh, when I was as busy as you are now, Josh, mm-hmm. and I'd be riding my bike or running, I'd always bring a little pad of paper or, or as these things came along. And I thought of something that I really wanted to do but didn't have time to do. I'd stop and write it down. Mm-hmm. And so I accumulated a list of about 35 things that I really wanted to do. Oh, cool. I haven't done them all, but ones that I've, I've done in spades are nature photography, hiking, uh, model building. As a kid, mm. I loved to put together models. I can show you downstairs. Yeah. When, when uh, COVID hit, I did a bunch of ship models and absolutely <laughs> loved it. And Didi now is interested in birds as well. So our travel now will probably be centered around Birding. places to see birds and i just love photographing birds i've photographed interesting i've photographed 575 species of birds whoa and and it gets harder and harder to find new new ones um yeah right and you need to travel to do it yeah so, anyway. this is like a great bucket list i'll have to see your list so i know no, being on this podcast was on that list too i'm sure Oh yeah. yeah, I've always wanted to be on a podcast. Yeah, no, but I mean these things, and I've I've gotten involved in some philanthropic things, yeah. and have thought of how maybe to be most effective with that. Didi and I have a wonderful time together. Yeah, that's and, great. Uh, we've loved COVID. We just kind of <laughs> hang out here together. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's it, it's all been good. I think. That's and, fantastic. And I I mean, there's a lot of aspects i miss the residents yeah i miss the wonderful collegiality we had in the department and all of that but i've got friends outside of surgery and uh, there's a lot of collegiality there as well yeah so let me ask you two last questions as we finish okay. up this one can be hard for some people but i like asking it who are your heroes anyone come to mind you can say me if that well well no no no, no I, admi- I i admire you <laughs> But who, I, I tell you, yeah, one of my heroes would, would have to be Tom Starzl yeah. because to persist in such adversity, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he bumped off the first, what, whatever, 15 yeah, people that he like that, yeah. liver transplanted, and he probably had so much pressure to stop. Yes. And you know the history better than I do. Oh, yeah, he was but being he called persisted. a murderer. And, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and by persisting, He's made a marvelous therapy for yeah. thousands and I guess in time millions of of people. So he would he would certainly be one. He's one of my my, my father would be mm-hmm. one of my heroes certainly. And I guess in in many ways uh, Frank Moody would be. Mm-hmm. I mean he so invested in me and so continued to be invested in me uh, when we separated uh, and he went to Houston and I went elsewhere. 
uh, he would certainly be one of my heroes. And again, from just a, a person, I, I guess maybe kind of a hero too would be Bob Chase. Mm-hmm. To be such a, I mean, that one instance yeah. to me is so remarkable. It really is unusual to do that. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question, although I could talk to you forever, um, but I'd like to end with this um, advice that you give to young people, whether they're in medicine or not in medicine, any advice that comes to you from all that you've learned along the way? Follow your passions. First of all, develop a passion. Be open to new things and find out what really turns you on and then follow it to the end of the earth. And the way to get there is whoever you're going to spend the rest of your life with, make a good choice. And then as far as, I guess, principles as you go along, do all you can to be fair and be honest. And you can't lose doing that. With difficult decisions you have to make, you have to make a decision. And whenever you make a decision, especially if you're the person in charge, you're not going to make everybody happy. But if you can take the loser and explain the process that you went through, whether usually they can accept it. And don't just communicate by email such things. Do it in person. That's really important advice nowadays, I have to tell you. (laughs) This has been so great. And, you know, what I want to say about you being like, you are really one of the most special people I've interacted with, the way you treat people, um, the way you carry yourself, the way you're there for people. And I, you have a lot of different legacies and probably a lot of things you, you might be proud of and remembered for. But I, I think the way you've treated people, the way your residents talk about you, I'm sure your patients as well. It's really, really special. I think about there's that NFL does that show, a, a football life, but this show should be called like a surgical life. You know, you're like, a, <laughs> you really model the way that I'd like to live my life. And uh, it's just been great catching up with you. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, you, you learn something about yourself, I guess, going through yeah. a podcast like this. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed it as well. Oh, good. All right. Well, I hope everyone else does as well. And uh, uh, this is going to be a great one. <laughs> and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at WISC Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. Welcome.